0: So, Americans, uh, we take pride in our democratic republic and uh, its separation of powers. Uh, a shout-out to James and Courtney Ruley, who have started a podcast called The American Experiment, uh, talking about separation of powers. Uh, it's great. And, uh, and, and if you're American and you know something about our government, uh, you, you recognize this reality that, uh, that, that people are, are sinful and when a, a branch of government or a government official has too much power, bad things are going to happen. And so we have this system of checks and balances uh, because it, it recognizes that, that human leadership is always failed leadership. Now, having said that, it's important to remember that the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. It is a kingdom, a kingdom of God. God is the king, and He won't be commissioning any polls, and He won't be running for reelection. He's the king. He will always be the king. And thankfully, He's a, he's a perfect king. He's a worthy king. worthy of our praise and our allegiance. Now, I bring this up because believing Jesus isn't the hardest thing about Christianity. The, The hardest thing, the hardest part is submitting to Jesus as king. It's embracing his right, his divine right to regulate your life, to regulate your values, your thoughts, even your heart. Jesus is to be the Lord, the King, even of your heart. It is, it is wrong to elevate human leaders. It is right to bow down to God, the Maker of heaven and earth. Listen, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 32. I'm going to read the first eight verses. The prophet says, Isaiah 32, verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words and even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. This is the second of a two-part series preparing us for Christmas. Last week, we looked at why Jesus came, God and sinners reconciled. This week, today, we look at how Jesus came. Let earth receive her king. Jesus came as a king, a king to be worshiped and a king to be obeyed. Now, our entrance point into this theological truth is the promise of Isaiah 32.1, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. So, uh, it 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 is easy for us to buy into Christmas traditions without paying attention. To Christmas theology, and in last week's message and in today's message, my aim is to get us to think theologically about Christmas. We're doing it all the time in the songs that we sing, but I want us to think about Christmas theologically, in this case, in the sermon you're about to hear. And so, as I sort of warned you last week, this week's sermon is going to be of a similar ilk a lot of turning around in the Bible, a lot of um, paying attention required. I'm not saying all my sermons don't require you to pay attention, but perhaps some require more attention than others. This is one of those, and uh, I encourage you to follow along. And I want to begin the way I did last week by presenting the book of Isaiah. Last week we were in Jeremiah, but today in Isaiah, I want you to see how Isaiah fits into the overall flow of the Old Testament. And let's start thinking particularly about this idea of, of a promised king. Now, in the opening pages of the Bible, God is presented as a king, even if that, that title isn't exactly, particularly used. For example, the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. And right from the get-go, we realize that everything that has been made was made by God. God alone is uncreated. God alone has existed for all time from before there was time because He alone is God. He made everything. And by virtue of Him alone being creator, God has absolute authority over everything that has been made. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as we confessed a few moments ago in the Nicene Creed, have always existed. And so, they are rightfully ruler of the heavens and the earth. Now, as ruler, God is the rightful law giver. And what do you know? In the opening pages of Genesis, we find that He gave a law, a command, a rule to Adam and Eve. He said that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was good for God to give that command because God is in fact the king. And when Adam violated that command, when he disobeyed that royal decree, well, what Adam was fundamentally doing was setting himself up as a king in lieu of God, the right ruler. He was declaring a kind of sphere sovereignty that Adam did not rightfully have. And you should know that every time we sin against God in thought, word, or deed, we are effectively crowning ourselves as ruler when, in fact, we are not. Well, Adam, of course... uh, brought sin into the world and all of his descendants suffered from that same reality. They are, of course, the the heroes of the Old Testament, but they are sinful nonetheless. You think of Noah, you think of Abraham, you think of Isaac, you think about Jacob, Jacob being the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the individuals that found themselves in the land of Egypt, growing in Egypt until finally God Leading them out of Egypt. Now, this is interesting because we know that Moses was the leader of Israel. He was the prophet established by God to be the leader of the people. But we also recognize that the people did not have a king. No, God was their king. Uh, Sure, Moses had a certain authority, but God was their king. Well, like Adam, Israel received commandments from God, he received a law. Like Adam, Israel received a land like Adam. Israel rejected God's commandments. Like Adam, eventually Israel would be booted out of God's land. Now, before then, and for generations, judges led the people of Israel. These judges served as the governors of the people. They served as the protectors of the people. Uh, They served uh, under the Lord. In the book of Judges, we read that that did not go very well. Several times we hear that everyone in those days did what was right in their own eyes. This is the, the plight of humanity seeking to rule itself. Well, around this time, the elders of Israel were looking around at the other nations, and they were getting particularly jealous of what they saw the other nations have. What do the other nations have? Well. Whereas Israel simply had a plurality of elders and various judges, the other nations, well, they had kings with armies, with chariots, with swords, with horses. And the elders of Israel said, well, we should have a king too. And so they found the prophet of Israel, a man by the name of Samuel. They knocked on Samuel's door and they demanded a king. Now, the prophet Samuel knew better. He knew this was not a good idea. And he was about to tell them off. But thankfully, before speaking unwisely, he went to the Lord in prayer, and God said, no, I want you to give the people what they want. Listen to what, what, God, what God said. This is 1 Samuel 8, 7. He said, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them." So even though God hadn't used that title, king, he clearly understood himself to be the regent of the people of Israel. And by asking for kings under him, they had rejected God as their king. Now, the rest of Israel's history from this point on, this point on is basically a history of failed leadership, of, uh, uh, of wretched rule over the people. Saul, the first king, was a train wreck. David, a ton better, a man after God's own heart. But you know the story, a sinner like the rest of them. Solomon probably had the best start of any king, but of course, he ended throwing it away for a harem. His son, Rehoboam, presided over a civil war. And in the midst of that civil war, the nation of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and each kingdom had a series of corrupt kings. And these corrupt kings paved the way for the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 B.C. and the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon in 586 B.C. And while all this is happening, there would have been some, many Israelites, remembered the promise that God had given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that's the promise that one day a son of David would sit on a throne, and that throne would last forever. Well, that forever king, that eternal throne, was not something that Israelites in the north or Israelites in the south had ever experienced. And this takes us to the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah had a long and healthy career. He lived for, he ministered in Jerusalem for roughly 40 years. Uh, He started in about 740 B.C. He wound things up in about 680 B.C. He preceded Jeremiah by about 120 years. So Jeremiah, of course, would have been familiar with the ministry of Isaiah. Now, like Jeremiah, Isaiah's main job was to deliver bad news to the people. I am so glad that is not my ministry. I know I often must tell you the bad news, and yet I am a new covenant preacher. Jeremiah ministered under the old covenant, and he delivered a lot of bad news. He announced to the people that they were covenant breakers, think about last week, and that God was a covenant keeper. And he was going to keep his promise to punish his people for forgetting him. It's important for us to remember, even as we go back to the Old Testament, such an ancient book, that the the human heart hasn't changed. We are fundamentally the same people that have existed since the fall. And so the sins that I'm about to summarize from Isaiah of the people of Israel uh, are probably going to be familiar to you. If you are not a Christian, well, there are going to be sins that you are in the midst of now. If you are a Christian, this is how you still struggle, and this is how you are still tempted. Let me summarize it this way. Let's start with the blatant hypocrisy, the blatant hypocrisy of the people of Israel. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Isaiah 1, 11. Right, God, speaking through Isaiah, says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So clearly, the Israelites are a religious people. They are accustomed to going to the temple and to offering religious sacrifices. The problem is their heart. Their heart isn't in it. And in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They do the right things, but they don't care. Uh, At this point, I always think about that mom driving down the road with her son in the back seat. And her son thinks it would be fun to unbuckle and stand up while she is driving you're terrified. Well, she is terrified too. And so she yells at her son, Junior, sit down. And he thinks this is a great fun. He doesn't sit down. Eventually she gets loud enough. He sits down. He buckles up, but he's a little mad because he was enjoying his freedom. And eventually he says, hey, mom, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's the human heart, isn't it? That is the unredeemed human heart. Blatant hypocrisy. I mean, that, that mom, certainly thankful she's sitting down. I mean, I don't care about his heart. I just want him to not, you know, get hurt. But she does care about his heart, doesn't she? She wants her son to, to want to obey her, to trust her. And so does God. He wants all of us, when we go through our own religious exercises, to look good to earn His favor, to try to assuage His wrath, well, our heart is not in it, and we are flirting with or in the midst of blatant hypocrisy. Now, in addition to this blatant hypocrisy, Isaiah calls out their spiritual amnesia, spiritual amnesia. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 10, we get a little taste of this. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Right? They've, they've forgotten God. The God who redeemed them from Egypt. The God who had planted them in the promised land. The God who had never forgotten one of his promises to them. They had not remembered him. They had forgotten them. And we, like them, are all tempted to forget the God who saved us. And to persist in a season of such forgetfulness is to call into question whether you knew God in the first place. It gets even worse for Israel. They didn't just forget God. They engaged in what we call religious syncretism. Religious syncretism. And this is where an individual holds two contradictory faiths in the same hand. Look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 16. We've already seen how the people of Israel went to the temple and offered the sacrifices, though their heart wasn't in it, though they had forgotten God. But it's not just that they were going through these religious exercises of Old Testament temple sacrifice, they had also turned simultaneously to other gods. So this is about a a man and his block of wood, a man and his block of wood. Verse 16, half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire, and the rest of it, the rest of this block of wood, the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. So the question for today is how many church-going Americans are looking for deliverance, in the approval of others, or the appearance of a steady paycheck, the moment the people in our lives become our security, the moment the things in our lives become our security, we are religious syncretists holding onto God with one hand while we simultaneously bow down to the idols we make in our 21st century lives." While all that is going on, the kings are for the most part nowhere to be seen. And again and again, Isaiah highlights the failed leadership found in the nation of Israel. It's a sad thing for us when we see a child growing up without a parent. One of the things that tugs at our hearts is when there's a kid who needs a mom, a dad, unable to have that care, that guidance, that, that love, well, we're to have that same heart for Israel, recognizing that they did not have a king who would guide and care for them the way that he should. This is not what those elders going up to Samuel expected, but this is what Samuel knew would happen. Certainly God knew this would happen. Failed leadership. Isaiah, at the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 3, we get a taste of it. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 14. We read, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So the 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 rulers of Israel have been freed up by the king to do whatever their heart desired, and what their heart desired to do was to torment and oppress the people. Where are the kings? What is the king doing? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that the kings are writing bad laws. The kings themselves are oppressing the people. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. The widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar?" in his 40 years of ministry i think that isaiah could not have been very popular i don't think he was invited to many cocktail parties in jerusalem he spoke the truth he warned people about the coming wrath of god we call it we call him the prince of prophets uh, in his own day they did not call him that last week i mentioned that the longest uh, old testament uh, passage cited in the new testament was jeremiah chapter 31 well the the, the most cited prophet by far in the New Testament is Isaiah, and it's not even close. He is the the Prince of Prophets. And and like all the other prophets, there is more to the story than these words of judgment that I've mentioned already. There's hope. and Isaiah 32, our passage is a a picture of hope. It's hope coming in, in purple robes. Behold, the king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. This king with his princes represents a good government, a righteous government, a good kingdom, a just kingdom. And the head of this kingdom is the king who will reign in righteousness." I think you can appreciate what a a reader of Isaiah might have felt being inundated with the reminder that he's not the man he ought to be, she's not the the woman she ought to be, and really there's no king in sight to make things right. And then you come across passages like Isaiah 32.1 and your question is inevitably going to be, all right then, who's this king? And so that's the question I want to answer in the rest of our time together this morning. Who is this king? And I have three answers to that question. This king is the Lord. This king is the Lord. This king is the Christ, the Messiah. And third, this king is the covenant. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the covenant. So first, the king is the Lord. Now, Israel did not just need a king. They needed God to be their king. Every earthly king had failed them. In the beginning, God had been their king, and they needed God to be their king again, And this is the message Isaiah has for the people. Isaiah 32.1 needs to be read in the context of 40 years of ministry, where the prophet teaches the people again and again that God and God alone is the king they need. All right. I want to show you this because it is so obvious simply by going through Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is the prophet's call to ministry. This is how his, his job began. This is what he saw. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy the Lord of hosts. This one event shaped the entirety of Isaiah's ministry. He received this vision of perfect holiness, of sovereign authority. God is the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 21. One day this king is going to be recognized and he will punish every earthly king who rejects His good authority, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Right? Only the king of kings can punish every wicked earthly king. Look at Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33 verse 22. This coming king is going to do more than judge. He is the judge. That's for sure. But he's going to do more than judge. He's going to save. Isaiah 33:22. For the Lord is our judge. Interesting, when you remember that Israel was once led by judges, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. Interesting when you remember the covenant-breaking pattern of Israel, and here they are reminded. Yes, God is the lawgiver. The Lord is our King. And then I would expect, after all my, you know, immorality and all my sin, and He will judge us. But that's not where Isaiah goes. He will save us. God will save. He's coming to save. And in the process of saving, God is going to judge Israel's enemies. Isaiah 43, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 14. So interesting that that Babylon is going to be sent by God to judge the people of Israel, but oh, people of Israel, remember God, the king, is going to judge Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Babylon, who is going to destroy Jerusalem, is one day going to face God's sovereign wrath. Isaiah 43, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, that's the the region of Babylon, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. I'm your king. Are you getting the point? God has no rival. He's the king. No one can compare with him. There's, there's no primary that God needs to show up and debate at. He's in a class all of his own. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And just to be clear, when you get to the very last chapter of Isaiah, it's like Isaiah is saying, and by the way, I don't want you to end, you know, my book with you thinking about anything other than the kingship of God. The chapter, the last chapter of Isaiah begins and ends with this theme. Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord." That's how Isaiah begins to end. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. You say, so what? Well, go to the very end of the chapter. Isaiah 66, verse 23, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. All right. You remember those elders who asked Samuel for a king? Doesn't all of this make you want to track track them down and ask them, what were you thinking This is your God. This is your king. Now, that was probably a proudful thing of me to say because my attention shouldn't be on them. It should be on me. Your attention should be on you. No one can encounter the true God, the heavenly king, and remain unchanged. No one can encounter the true God, this heavenly king, and remain unchanged. When Isaiah saw a vision of God seated on his throne, high and lifted up, when he heard the seraphim singing, holy, 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 all Isaiah could do is cry out, woe is me, for I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Seeing the king changes you. It humbles you. And we need today a sense of the majesty of God, a sense of his his kingliness, of his royalty. We We are afraid of many things today. And they're real things, and they're important things, and they're the causes of great sadness. We're afraid of a pandemic, of political turmoil, I know that, that, that many of us are afraid of the social degeneration of our country and of our world, and we wonder what we're going to leave to the next generation. But if you read Isaiah carefully, though you will remain concerned about all the things in this present world, you will know that God and God alone is to be feared. He's the king. He's holy. We need to believe with every fiber of our being that nothing is more frightening than a personal encounter with God. You need to believe that the most terrifying experience you could ever have is being confronted by the God who made you. The way God confronted Isaiah that day in that amazing vision. You need to see the Lord in such a way that you recognize in your heart of hearts whom he actually is. And before you go home and like turn all the lights off and like get in the closet and start like waiting for a vision of the Lord to appear, may I remind you that we see God with our ears We see God as we listen to him speak to us in his word, declaring to us his character. That's how we see the Lord. So when you turn down the noise of the world and humble yourself and slow down for just long enough to listen to who God declares himself to be in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and so forth, and so on. You cannot help but encounter God for who He actually is, and that will inevitably change you. God is king. He is holy. Nothing is more frightening than a personal encounter with a holy God. He's not a buddy to be slapped on the back. He's a king. We're to worship and obey. Now, if what I'm saying seems a little strange to you, a little foreign to you, well, then in one sense, I'm not sure you know the real God. Right? If you've never trembled before God, I'm not sure you've been, you've been changed by God. If you cannot cry out, woe is me, when you confess your sins to the king, well, then I'm not sure that you're really confessing. You need to see the king, the Lord of hosts. If our mind is saturated by 24-7 cable TV or an unending Facebook feed, we will never see God on his throne. Pause long enough for God to confront you with his word. I am struck, and I know there are a lot of things about the pandemic that we are to be upset about, and I don't think the virus is good. I do recognize this. In 2020, a lot of you have slowed down in a way that you've not slowed down for years. Some of you have engaged God in Scripture with more carefulness than you have in years and years. And I would say to you, don't let that stop. If you're experiencing God by hearing him in his word because you have had more time, because certain things in your life have been carved out like commutes. Well, praise God for that. In the 21st century, much of the Christian life is spent trying to be more comfortable, trying to be less anxious, trying to be more at peace. But if we're reading Isaiah rightly, the road to true comfort and true rest and true peace goes straight through the mountain of God's majestic holiness. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other road. Before you can really rest, you've got to be undone, shaken up, unsettled, cut to the heart, however you would describe that experience Isaiah has in chapter 6. Before you can enjoy the peace of God, you've got to be taken apart by God. And I don't know how else that's going to happen to you unless you are confronted by his holiness. When the king is your king you will experience a joy you never thought possible, a joy that is clearly summarized in our passage. Isaiah 32, verse 2, each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. I want this for you, but it will not happen until God is your king. The king is the Lord. Now, second, the king is the Christ. The king is the Christ. Isaiah 32.1 is saying more than simply the king is the Lord. It's telling us this king is the Christ, the Messiah, the human king in the line of David. Again, let me show you Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this." So God promises judgment, and Isaiah 10 through 23 is all about God's judgment on the nations. But here we have this amazing promise of light for the nations. Light is going to come. Joy is going to come. And in verse 6, we find out through whom this light and this joy comes. It comes through a child. It comes through a son. It comes through a government official. It comes through a wonderful counselor who is the mighty God. It comes through an everlasting father who is the prince of peace. It comes through one whose government and whose peace shall never end. It comes through one who sits on David's throne. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's an awful lot like what the angels said to the shepherds on the day that Jesus was born. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, we hear the angels crying out eerily similar words. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord go back to isaiah look this time at chapter 11 chapter 11 verse 1 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is obviously the work of a king. That's without doubt. You see there in verse 1, Jesse. Jesse was David's father. Second Samuel 7 speaks of one from David's line who would sit on the throne that lasts forever. This shoot from the stump of Jesse is none other than the king God promised, David. And what does Isaiah tell us about the king here? Verse 2, he is filled with the spirit, filled with wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And one cannot help but think of Jesus who increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, Luke two fifty two, Or how on the day of his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus or how every day of Jesus' ministry he taught as no one else had taught, with authority and wisdom. We're told in Isaiah eleven six that with righteousness he will judge the poor. Israel grew accustomed to leaders abusing the poor and mocking the meek. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There never was a man like Jesus, and he is the promised king of Isaiah. And centuries after Isaiah prophesied, when the apostle Paul had the opportunity to preach the gospel in a synagogue in Antioch, Paul had the words of Isaiah 11 on his mind. Listen to what Paul told this gathering about Jesus. Listen to Acts chapter 13. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, that is when God had removed Saul, Paul tells the congregation, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus, as he promised, as he promised. Jesus is the promised Savior. He's the promised King. So do you see what Isaiah is doing? Isaiah is establishing that, that God alone is King, and he's establishing that this King is the descendant of David. Uh, Isaiah is preparing his people to understand that God is going to do something practically unimaginable. Because the only way for this to work is for God to take on human flesh. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Joseph is ready to abandon Mary because she's pregnant, though they've never been together. An angel comes to Joseph and tells Joseph not to fear. He's to marry Mary. And he says that she's going to bear a son, and call his name Jesus, and this Jesus will save his people from his from their sin. And then to prove the point, the angel cites Isaiah, chapter seven, verse eleven: "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God." with us. This King is the Lord and this King is the Christ. Now, what if today is the first time you ever heard that? In other words, what if you sort of didn't know what Christmas is about? And maybe you live in Riyadh, you know, maybe you're somewhere in the Middle East, maybe you're in the, in the Caucasus. Maybe you've grown up in, a, in an enclave, in, in a communist country. And you've never heard this idea that that God, the the divine one, took on human flesh and all of a sudden, I don't know, you're you're hearing a, a sermon preached in Isaiah and you probably have no idea what's going on, but you know enough to know this guy seems to be saying he's both God and man. Well, the question on your mind would be, well, why? Why would God do that? And so I want to end this morning by letting you see how Isaiah answers the why question. So who is the king? This king is the Lord. He's God. This king is the Christ. He is man. And number three, this king is the covenant. We cannot talk about the coming of the king without returning to that topic we discussed last week, the new covenant, God's promise to prosper a people who disobeyed through the obedience of one, that we might be forgiven. Isaiah, look at chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things, new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Right now, now, what new things is, Isaiah, is God talking about through Isaiah? What are these, these new things? These new things, the answer is found in the first few verses of Isaiah 42, the first half of the chapter. Look at verse 1. Behold and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Now he's speaking to this servant that he's going to raise up. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. Again, God is describing his servant. This is the servant that we know of, of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, the one who will come and suffer and die for the people, but he's also the king of Isaiah 32, verse 1. And look carefully at verse 6. Notice what God tells this servant, this king. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. So, so what's this king going to do? Like, what's his ministry? What's his mission? He is going to make blind people see. He is going to make the deaf hear. And this should ring a bell. Go back to our passage, Isaiah 32. Remember these verses. Look at verse 3. This is the ministry of the king. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. See, they've been closed. They've been blinded. But under the the reign of this king, the eyes will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. In other words, people who are blinded are going to see. People who are deaf are going to hear. People who have hearts that are hard are finally going to have hearts that that understand. This is the ministry of, of the king. And and that's why we began the sermon by thinking about the sin of Israel, about their blatant hypocrisy, about their spiritual amnesia, about their religious syncretism, about their failed leadership, right? All of that is there, and all of that is true. And when they lived like this, when they rejected God as king, they became a people whose eyes couldn't see, whose ears couldn't hear, and whose heart was hardened. Right. They became a people no better than that idol made out of wood in Isaiah 44. And, and, and how can they change? What, what hope do they have of change? And only God can do that. The, the king is the Lord. Only the Lord can do that. Only he can give them eyes to see and, and ears to hear. Oh, only God can take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. But for God to do that, something amazing has to happen. He's got to enter into our blindness and our deafness and our ignorance. I know that uh, the kids have been waiting for a long time and kids, you're doing a good job. Adults, I expect this of you, but the kids are amazing. Um, so let's talk about Eustace from the Voyage of the Don Treader, all right? Eustace was a beastly boy. Nasty, a hard-hearted, a liar, a greedy, um, proud, despicable in every possible way. That is Eustace. And one day when Eustace got off the ship, the Don Treader, and he finds himself on basically a deserted island, Eustace finds a pile of gold and jewels and all sorts of, 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 uh, of treasure. And Eustace, who is nothing but a greedy, horrible person, thinks, well, I've hit the jackpot. And he stuffs his pockets with all the jewelry and all the gold that he can possibly uh, uh, carry. And then, sort of uh, amazingly, he falls asleep right on the pile of gold. Now, at that point, the nightmare begins, because it's right then that Eustace wakes up and he discovers that he is a big, ugly, smelly, scaly dragon. Now, he can fly, but no one knows who he is. And everyone hates him and everyone considers him a monster. And there's nothing that Eustace can do to turn himself back into being a boy. Now, the reader of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader knows exactly what's going on here. Eustace has simply become on the outside the person that he was on the inside. That's very obvious. He was a, a beast on the inside, and now he's a beast on the outside. Now his body matches his heart. And friends, this is how Isaiah describes humanity. We've got eyes. Eustace had eyes, but they were dragon eyes. Eustace had ears, but they were dragon ears. He had a heart, but it was a flaming dragon heart. We have eyes, but we can't see, and ears, but we can't hear. And we've got a heart, but it can't feel, at least not the way it, it should. And we can't change ourselves any more than Eustace could turn himself back into a little boy. So where's their hope? And where's our hope? All right. Our hope is in a king, but not just any king. This king has to be the Lord. He has to be truly God. Only God can save them. Only God who is holy, perfect, powerful. Only he can change a human heart. This king has to be the Christ. He's got to be truly man. Only a man can stand in our place. Only a man can bear our punishment. This king has to be the covenant. He has to be the one to bring the father and his people together. It wasn't enough for Jesus to live a perfect life. He had to die in our place. This is the new covenant in my blood. How could he shed blood? Because the king had to be the Lord and the king had to be the Christ so that the king could be the covenant. Paul put it this way. And as we end, if you just look at chapter 32, verse one, as you listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him We might become the righteousness of God. That's the real miracle. Jesus reigned in righteousness, not by keeping that righteousness for himself, but by giving it to us. Jesus died so that we could live, Jesus was crushed so that we could be exalted, Jesus became the dragon so that we could become the boy. I said at the start of this sermon that the hardest part of becoming, and even of being a Christian, is submitting to Christ. Because if you're anything like me, it's hard to give up control. It's hard to be a slave and know that your job is to honor Christ as your Lord every single second of your life. Notice I said second, not even every minute every second of your life, and nothing will make this easy. It's hard. It requires a daily dying to yourself, to your desires, right? Jesus said that you've got to carry your cross and follow him, and nothing will make this easy. But if you are a Christian, you are following a God who understands You're following a God who cares. You're following a God who knows the cost of discipleship because he he paid for it. Jesus isn't some abstract deity that we sing songs to on Sunday morning. He's the king who took on human flesh and walked in our place and suffered on our behalf. And if you've never chosen to follow this king, today's the day. There's nothing stopping you. Put down your sin, pick up your cross, follow him. And if you are a Christian, nothing you receive on Christmas morning will beat what you have. The king of the universe who came for you so you could go to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the King is the Lord and the King is the Christ and the King is the covenant. We pray, Father, that this Christmas theology would shape every month and week, every day and hour, every minute and second of our entire lives. We pray that none of us would seek to make ourselves right with you except by going to Christ our crucified and resurrected savior and we pray all of this in Jesus name amen